0: Hello, everybody. This is Cortland from ndhackers.com. And today I've got Wade Foster, the CEO of Zapier, on the podcast. How's it going, Wade?
1: Pretty good. Thanks for having me, Cortland.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to do my best to explain what Zapier is, and then I would love for you to go ahead and explain what Zapier is in case I do an awful job but zapier allows you to connect practically any apps and products to each other so that you can automate your work uh, for example if you get a new tweet you can automatically have zapier create a draft in your gmail inbox or add a road to a google spreadsheet uh, so personally i think zapier is an invaluable tool for people who don't know how to code and also for developers uh, i use it in any hackers because it's way faster than learning a hundred different apis and coding it all up myself that's my interpretation of what zapier is wade how would you explain it
1: That's pretty good. Uh, I generally talk about Zapier as like a workflow automation platform hooks into about, I think we've got 800 different apps now. So, you know, tools like Salesforce, Slack, Google Apps, MailChimp, Stripe, um, you name it. Like if there's a SaaS app out there, it's probably on Zapier at this point in time. Uh, And then, like you said, you can set up these uh, little rules that automate pushing data between various apps and, uh, Really does help you, you know, speed up time, automate kind of the mundane work you've got going on, and you can end up building some some pretty cool stuff with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those tools that now that I'm like super familiar with it and I use it all the time. I wonder how I got anything done without it. I guess I just did everything by hand and spent a lot of time uh, hooking things up, and yet it's pretty new. You know, like for most of the internet's history, there was no tool like Zapier, uh, and so I really want to, like, at some point in this interview, ask you questions about like how you end up marketing a tool that you know, doesn't really exist and trying to explain it to people who've never heard of it, because I'm sure in the earlier days, like trying to figure out what messages resonated with people is very difficult. But uh, we'll get to that later. Let's start off in the very beginning. Can you talk about like the earliest days of Zapier when you guys are maybe working on the prototype or just coming up with the idea?
1: Yeah, so Zapier uh, started as a side project between me and my two co-founders in Columbia, Missouri in 2011. And so, the way it originally came about was Brian and I, one of my co-founders, we were, we'd been doing a, like just various amounts of freelancing, you know odd web jobs basically anyone that would pay us to do anything on the internet was the type of work we would do more or less so you know in columbia missouri so not like a super tech centric town there is some stuff going on but you know it it doesn't compare to say for example like san francisco so like basic wordpress installs you know whatever right was the type of stuff we would do and a couple times things came up that were like you know get this um PayPal sales logged in QuickBooks or get this list of leads uploaded into Salesforce. Uh, Various things like that. And Brian had this insight. He was like, you know, they're paying us a lot of money to do this type of work. What if we built kind of a a plug and play out of the box tool that allowed non-engineers to set this stuff up um, using, you know, the various APIs that existed. And so that was kind of the original idea. And so we ended up taking kind of that nugget of a thought to uh, a startup weekend and teaming up with Mike built out like the original prototype and it seemed to go pretty well. So we're like, okay, let's, let's give this thing a go. And for like the next, basically, I don't know, six to nine months, we worked like nights and weekends on Zapier, just trying to get like a prototype and a beta working. Uh, So kept our day jobs, Mike stayed in school. and, And it was really just trying to like make something happen uh with what spare time we had so what is startup weekend exactly is that a hackathon or something like that it's basically a hackathon uh you you know 50 something hours or whatever friday night to sunday night you you bring an idea and you build something more or less how did you come up with the idea that
0: or how did you know that non-engineers wanted to hook stuff up like this because it's very possible that you could build it and nobody would care about it. I mean, were you guys certain at that point that it was a problem that lots of people had or were you kind of just thinking this would be cool, uh, let's see what happens?
1: We were fairly certain that it was a problem that some people had. Uh, I don't know that we knew that lots of people had it, but we knew that it was something some had because if you went to uh, the various apps, they a lot of time folks have forums where their customers talk about this stuff. So at the time, I remember being on the high rise forums and they were asking for a Google contacts integration. And there was like 400 comments on it where there was no Google contacts integration. And then, you know, you do the same thing on like the Evernote forums or the Dropbox forums or the Salesforce forums where people would be asking for these variety of integrations. And just looking at the comment history, like a lot of the threads were like fairly dated, you know, and then there was just comments that kind of trickled in over you know, months and sometimes even years of people requesting this stuff. So to us, that was validation that, you know, if we could build a tool that allowed people to set up integrations between this stuff, certainly it would solve problems for, for folks.
0: Did you ever think in the beginning that this is something that people would pay money for? Or did you think it was, you know, a cool project that people would just use?
1: We're pretty sure that people would pay money for it. We didn't know like how much or anything like that, but, at its premise, it kind of makes sense, right? Companies have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of time. So if you can automate something for them, you know, they're willing to pay some money for that. You know, if you can save an engineering resource, like engineers cost a lot of money. So it it made sense to us that like, it would be worth some amount of money for this to exist.
0: Yeah. And the reason I'm asking you all of these questions about like, how you came up with the idea is because a lot of people get stuck in this loop at that phase where, they're really excited to go work on something, and they're really motivated, and maybe they've learned to code, or maybe they already knew how to code, but they just don't know what idea to work on. And they kind of fall into two buckets. One is people who have a ton of ideas, and they're not sure which one's the best, or how to think about, okay, which one should I pursue? And there's some people who think, you know, I don't have any ideas, I don't have any problems worth solving. Do you have any sort of philosophy about how to come up with ideas, and
1: did you guys consider other ideas
0: besides Zapier?
1: Uh, Zapier was really the only one that we seriously consider. We had a few different things, you know, we were kind of, we'd used a lot of SaaS apps like in our day-to-day job. And honestly, like this observation just came from like hanging around in the forums, it, it, like the forums of these SaaS apps, like are just, it's just literally customer feature requests, like nonstop. Uh, you know, each one is just like, I wish your app did this, or I wish your app did that, or I wish this existed, or I wish that existed. So it literally is customers telling you if you build these things I will want to use them, right? So from an idea generation standpoint, like just, you know, hanging out in forums where other products exist is like a pretty good way to find ideas for stuff that if you're looking for something to build, you might find something there.
0: Yeah, I've never heard anyone give that advice before, but it's really good advice because like you said, people are constantly airing their problems and they're usually doing it in like a business environment where they have some problem that their business needs to solve, which means it's likely that they'll pay for it because their business will make more money or save more time as a result of it.
1: Well, exactly. They're already paying for those tools too, right? So it's like they've already demonstrated, you know, I'm going to pay for stuff. I just want these features to exist and I'll pay it more.
0: <laughs> yeah. So if you're listening and you are trying to come up with an idea, spend some time in some some customer support forums for some other software, uh, ideally business software that people pay for, and see if you can find some insights and some problems there. And people are probably going to to talk about their problems, right? They're not going to suggest a solution. There's nobody in the forum who said, "I want you know you guys to build." I want Mailchimp to build Zapier, right? They just said, "I want Mailchimp to connect with X," and then you guys had to do the extra reach of figuring out, okay, here's what the ideal solution to that problem looks like for anybody.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Another cool thing about Zapier. That is not necessarily the most common thing among the people that I talk to is that you guys have three co founders. It's you, and I, if I'm not wrong, you were in the beginning at least kind of the marketing guy, and then your two co founders are developers. How did you guys meet early on, and what was that dynamic like of working with your co founders?
1: Brian and I met um, playing music. Uh, So he's a bass and guitar player and I was a saxophone player. So we played in like a blues and jazz quartet around town and we both kind of worked on various things, you know, started doing work together basically as an evolution of being in that uh, music quartet. So, you know, he would, he would do a lot more of the harder technical work and then I would, you know, help out on some of the technical side and do a lot of the marketing client sales type stuff, support type stuff. And Brian had met Mike, I think through like Hacker News of all things. And like there was like someone did a show HN that was, you know, put your zip code in and they were like the only two people in Columbia, Missouri. So they met that way, I think. And, uh, you know, Brian introduced Mike and I and we all just kind of hit it off pretty well. Like Brian and I had known each other for a long time and Brian had known Mike for a while. And so, yeah, you know, we kind of had similar backgrounds, similar values, similar approaches to work. So it was pretty easy for us to to collaborate, and and we had, all had complementary skills, which made it even better to actually start something together. Did you say that that you played the sax, or did Brian play the sax? I play the sax. Oh, uh, uh, which Brian's one? Bass and guitar, uh, mostly tenor, but I I play all of them.
0: Cool. I I grew up playing alto sax. Oh, cool. I was, was pretty good as a kid. In fact, I. Uh, I kind of wanted to get into jazz, but like not the good jazz. I idolized Kenny G when I was, in like, <laughs> when I was like 10 years old. And I, at some point I was like, I either want to be Bill Gates or be Kenny G. Those are my role models. And fortunately, I chose the technical coding path. But that's funny to hear.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of you know jazz musicians in in the tech world. I, I don't know why that is, but it you know, just seems to shake out that way. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, maybe there's some sort of theory we could extract here about how uh, playing jazz and improvising leads to people to being creative thinkers and being independently motivated to start businesses. I don't know. I don't know. Narrative,
1: narrative fits to me, so it must be true, <laughs> That right? must be true. If you're
0: listening, <laughs> take, take up jazz jazz music, please. <laughs> so the other cool thing is that you guys were working on this on the side of your full-time jobs. Zapier wasn't like some huge success that immediately made you guys enough money to quit your full-time jobs. And a lot of people in this position find it really difficult to find the time to you know come home after work and put in the hours needed to build a business up on the side. How did you manage this work-life balance type thing where you had to work a job and actually build and grow Zapier?
1: There really wasn't much balance to be honest, but I was at a time in my life where that wasn't super necessary. So I had just gotten married And my wife was a first year teacher. And if you know anything about, you know, first year teachers, they work crazy hours. So like she would be upgrading to until like, you know, 10 or 11 p.m. every night and then out the door in the morning before 7 a.m. Uh, So she was working a ton, too. I actually started working a lot because like I needed something to do, you know, because she was she was doing stuff. So that's really where I started digging in and like just getting excited about working on side projects and doing stuff on the side. And so when we started here, it really wasn't a big deal to, to just work a ton after work, but it was working on stuff that I was maybe more excited about than, um, you know, what was happening on day jobs. So I, you know, it wasn't like I had school or, you know, kids or anything like that, that required that sort of balance. It was at a time in my life that was a good period where I had that opportunity.
0: Would you say the same is true of your co-founders too? Did they, uh.
1: Yeah, definitely. They were both in a similar situation as well, where putting in those types of hours and working on this stuff on the side just, you know, was it was fun. It was like a hobby for us. um, And we didn't necessarily have other commitments that prevented us from doing that.
0: Okay, so the three of you guys are working, you're trying to build this product up from scratch, you've launched it from a hackathon and basically a couple days of work and a few more weeks of work after that. What is your job early on at the company as the marketing
1: guy? So I was doing a lot of trying to drive up beta customers, more or less, um, and building a lot of landing pages out. So like our Zapbook was partially built by me. And then I basically, you know, I mentioned those forums earlier where folks were talking about integrations. Uh, I would actually start commenting in those forums. I would say things like, you know, that high rise Google contacts thread. I'd say like, hey, you could you could build something through the APIs. Here's the links to their API docs. Uh, but if you're wanting something a little more out of the box, I'm working on a project where I might be able to solve this, um, you know, go to this link and give me your contact information. And I'll get in touch. And so I would just do that like a ton. Honestly, um, you get kind of tired of trolling through forums, but that's what it took. And, you know, I remember putting those links in and any given comment would drive maybe like, I don't know, 10 visitors over the lifetime of the comment to, to Zapier But of the 10 visitors, like five of them would be like, I want to be a beta customer right now, which at the time, that's exactly what we needed. We didn't need, you know, millions of users. We really just needed like a couple folks to give us a shot. Right. And so that worked out really, really well in the early days. It's cool that people reacted
0: so well to you coming into these forums and promoting your product because... Effectively, it's a lot of people will go onto Hacker News or into a Facebook group or on Reddit and promote their product and then just get flamed out of the room because it's like, hey, we've got our own culture here. You know, like you're violating, you're just self promoting yourself. But on like company support forums, there really isn't much culture. It's just people who go there and they don't hang out there all day. They just go there to solve a specific problem. And so you came in and said, hey, we've got this perfect solution to your problem. Try this. And people reacted really well to it. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. And I, well, I think part of it is to, to just understand, like, if you know that self-promotion is a thing, like you should probably be tactful about how you, you know, approach those comments. So for me, it was always, I always tried to promote the APIs first and say like, Hey, look, if you are a developer, you can use the APIs, you can get this done. But if you are looking for something out of the box, I'm working on something, uh, you know, check it out. Right. Like I wasn't trying to be like overly salesy or say like the thing I had was the best solution or even, you know, the preferred solution. It was just, I got a project I'm working on. If you want to talk, let's talk. If not, that's cool. There's these APIs was the other way to do it. So it was very just like casual, you know, comments and not, you know, hard selling.
0: The other cool thing about you going onto these forums and finding your first customers or your your beta customers is that, uh, it fits so perfectly into this narrative that I see time and time again of companies getting their start by doing things that don't scale, which, uh, as you know, Paul Graham is really big on and he should be because it's totally true. Uh, for indie hackers, I had to send out a ton of emails to get my initial interviewees and I don't do that anymore, but I had to do it to get it off the ground. And with you guys, like I'm sure you're not spending your day to day now you know, on customer support forums asking people to use your product, uh, but like you said, it's it's kind of advantageous to be small because... In those early days, you don't need to get a million users in the door. You just need to get five or 10 or 100 people. And you can get that number of people for any product that you build purely through brute forcing it and being willing to actually have these one-on-one conversations with individual customers on support forums or on Twitter or wherever you can find them.
1: Exactly. And you just learn so much from going through that exercise. You learn, you get such a good qualitative feedback because you understand the nuances every step of the way. And so you can figure out, like, what is the actual appropriate way to scale this up by doing this, you know, basically manual work the entire process.
0: Yeah, it's like you're validating your idea by talking to all these people while also getting them onto your platform. Were there any conversations that you had with customers early on that led you guys to realize that you were making, you know, some sort of mistake that, you know, helped you kind of course correct?
1: I remember... Uh, you know, my very first, so our very first customer, um, happened to be Andrew Warner of, of Mixergy. It was from a cold email to him. Just, I found him actually commenting on a forum saying like, I want a PayPal high rise integration or something like that. And so I emailed him and said, Hey, by chance, did, did you find this? Um, if not, you know, again, I'm working on a project. Would you be interested in chatting? he was like, I didn't find it. I, I would be interested So we built out what he needed like that night and then sent him an email and said like, here you go, check it out. And (laughs) Andrew is like the nicest guy ever. And so he emails back and he's like, hey, Wade, you know, this looks cool. Uh, I'm really excited about using it. Um, Do you mind if you jump on Skype real quick and show me how to use this? (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) like, it was so bad. Like, he he wanted it to work. But the app was at that time was just so bad that he couldn't even figure out like what he was doing. And, And I remember like, you know, watching him try and use it. And then me looking at the same time being like, yeah, this is bad. Like, you know, he like the fact that he's even going through this like process with me just shows how much he really wants this. Um, I remember like you had that there was this spot we were setting up a Wufu, a Weber integration. And uh, to set that up, you have to pick like which Wufu form do you want this to work with? And in the drop down it showed the IDs of the woofu form and not the names of the woofu form. So like he didn't even know which woofu forms he was picking. It's <laughs> so, like I had to show him like how to figure all this out and stuff. It was just like really silly. And so I think, you know, going through those calls with our, I did that for probably like our first, I don't even know how many it was. It was like several dozen customers. And every time I would just like jot down the things that you know, didn't work for them, basically. And then I I sit down and show the videos to Brian and Mike and say like, hey, here's the spots on the product that are confusing people. You know, we got to find better better UX for this stuff. And so rinse, wash and repeat. Like we just kept doing that over and over again until eventually less people said, hey, can you get on a call and show me how to use this? And instead it was like, looks great. We love it. Nice. It's like one of the,
0: the important lessons here is that you're getting so much feedback through these back and forth interactions with customers from from super early on. And I hear one of the most common stories that I hear is people who spent the last six months or 12 months of their life working on some project in total isolation without talking to a single customer or trying to get anybody to use it because they're embarrassed and they're like, it's not ready yet, needs to get to its final form before I show it to anybody. And then when they do show it to people, it has all of these problems and nobody wants to use it. And they realize, you know, retroactively, like way too late, like, hey, I probably should have been showing this to people from day one so that they can. Like, exactly. Yeah.
1: And if you're working on a problem that people really care to get solved, they won't care that it's bad. Like they don't care that it's crappy. They'll just tell you. They'll say like, hey, I can't use this. Um, do you think you could add like this feature? Do you think you can make this more confusing? Like they'll work with you on it if it's that big of a problem for you. So you shouldn't feel embarrassed to share that stuff because people want the problem solved. So they'll tell you like, Hey, I need this. <laughs> and it's really helpful. Cause then you can be like, Oh, okay. I'll fix that. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. It's like a, Someone was just asking me
0: the other day like how do I how do I know what features to build next? You know, I've got my minimum viable product out. What do I build next? And it's like if you truly built a minimum viable product that's like the bare minimum that customers can get away with, then just talk to your customers and they'll tell you for sure what you need to build next for them to to use it. And speaking of customers, you mentioned that you're signing up beta customers, not beta users. And I know from reading through your past interviews that you guys actually made people pay for your beta. Why did you do that?
1: Well, um, you asked me earlier, you know, did you know that people would would pay for this stuff? And, you know, I said we thought they would. And, you know, a paid beta was our way of proving they'll pay something right. I, I You know, you read some comments about this where it's like, you know, pulling a credit card out is like one of the toughest things. And so we didn't ask for a lot of money. We made our beta was a one time fee. It wasn't a subscription. So we just said, pay for our beta. You know, eventually this is going to turn into a subscription at some point in time. But for now, you'll have access to it while we're in kind of, you know, beta building, you know, more or less. And uh, I think the very first folks we charged like a hundred bucks to and, you know, I was like, all right, that proved it. And then after that, we just changed it to like, I forget, it was like five or ten bucks and just as a a way to get more folks in the door. But we wanted to be talking to people who were going to be willing to pay. We wanted to weed out like the tire kickers. We wanted to folks in that qualitative feedback, we knew we're going to pony up the cash, right? Those are the problems we wanted to listen to, not to, you know, tire kickers who are just like curious because the tech is cool or the product is cool. Yeah.
0: And those people are going to probably give you the worst advice because they're not actually serious about using your product. So ultimately, if you optimize your product based on the advice of free users, you're going to build a product that's good for free users and that's bad for, you know, the paying customers who you actually want to get into the door.
1: Exactly. They'll tell you to chase features that are not relevant to solving a business problem. They'll just be nice, cool things that exist. Whereas, you know, your business customers, they'll tell you like, this is the stuff that matters for my business.
0: Exactly. Uh, So, okay. You're in this early stage posting on these forums, you're getting your first beta users. What was the next step in the process? Like when did you guys move to the next level and say, okay, we've really got a real business here and our beta is really taking off
1: so I think, you know, by the end of, you know, you know, after I had done like those dozen plus Skype calls or whatever, we got to a point where we had uh, several hundred folks into the beta. We talked to like tons of folks and we would improve the UI and the UX such that we didn't have to like manually onboard people anymore. People could self-serve, figure out like how to use the thing. And so that was a good signal to us that it's time to launch. And so... About that same time was when we'd applied and gotten into YC. And I remember our very first office hours, we were telling them this and they were like, well, why don't you just launch? Like, it sounds like you're ready. And so literally that week we launched Zapier publicly. So, you know, we opened it up, you know, we had a email list, I think of that point in time of several thousand folks, I think it was about 10,000 folks who so we emailed all of them and said like, Hey, you can sign up now, check it out. Right. Uh, and that was kind of our transition from like this private beta, you know, side project thing to like, okay, this is going to be like a real product, a real business. Um, Let's make this go.
0: How was the Y Combinator experience for you, by the way? For people listening, Wade and I both went through Y Combinator together. Well, not together. Uh, I did it in winter 2011. I think you guys were
1: 2012. Yeah, we went through summer 2012. And for us, the thing that was most critical, I think, you know, we were a side project, right? You know, granted, a very committed side project, but... A side project nonetheless so you know i I'd, I'd gone full-time i think by the time we've gone through the yc interview process and mike mostly had and brian i think was still employed as well um so for us though yc was just like this ability it gave us this incredible ability to focus on zapier as the only thing so we moved away from missouri away from friends family And so for an entire summer, it was like the three of us just hold up in an apartment, a hundred percent focused on Zapier. Like we didn't do much else other than work on Zapier. And so that amount of focus allowed us to make incredible strides in a three three month period.
0: Yeah, I felt the exact same way going through it. I mean, you're surrounded by a whole bunch of other people who are also intensely focused and pretty much talk about nothing besides their companies and how they're going to grow them. And then you're, especially if you move from out of town, just to be there for Y Combinator, you don't have much else to do besides work on your business. And so you get an amazing amount of work done. And it's sometimes hard to sustain that after Y Combinator, you know, when you move out or, you know, things kind of quiet down. Uh, I see a lot of businesses that go through, YC and slow down tremendously after, after ending it. Uh, But on that note, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on work-life balance because, like you said, your wife was a first-year teacher, so you were working all the time. You go to YC, you do this three-month stint of just hardcore work. Uh, were you ever worried about burning out? And also, nowadays, you guys have a really big business. How does your work-life balance, you know, get affected by being such a big company? And do you feel like you created a lifestyle that you could sustain for years to come?
1: So yes, I think uh, we, I, I've definitely changed, you know, the work-life balance bits of it, and. It was something we had to improve on, like when we, you know, I think around post YC for like a year or so was was kind of tough because from work life balance standpoint, because we were growing a lot, um, we're adding a lot of customers, but we still didn't have like a very big team, you know, we were still less than 10 people. So the weight of the entire company was still more or less on our shoulders. And so that meant working a lot, like customer support tickets don't answer themselves. Code doesn't write itself. So you have to be doing that stuff. Otherwise, you know, the business doesn't move forward. So that was kind of tough, right? Like I had to figure out like ways to get things done where I could still have time off. And so I think the agreement at the time that I made with my wife is like, okay, I'm not going to work on Saturdays at all, right? But like, I'm, there's still going to be some longer hours. But then over time, as we were able to staff up the team a little bit more, there was always this goal to like build a much better work life balance into the company. And so nowadays, like, you know, we have a we have a good support team, we have a good marketing team, we have a good engineering team, good product team, and so the weight of the world isn't on any one individual to do this. And so all of us can put in a good 40 hours a week we can go home at the end of the day see our kids see our families have hobbies and things outside of work because at the end of the day you know the business is um it's it really is a marathon not a sprint and so if you don't pace yourself um you will find yourself burning out basically and so you got to you got to eventually find that balance i think otherwise um it, something will something's got to give
0: yeah i'm like the Like textbook poster child of what you should not do. I just constantly burn myself out all the time. I'm like, "Ah, I got to get there as fast as I possibly can. I got to get there as fast as I can. And I just work crazy hours and never learn my lesson. And I get burned out and have like two super unproductive weeks every time I get burned out. On that note, a cool thing about how you guys operate Zapier is that you're a totally remote company, or at least at the very beginning you guys were. Are you guys still completely remote?
1: We're 100% remote still to this day.
0: How did you decide to go that route? And because I know like at the time it wasn't nearly as common as it is now, and it's still really not all that common. People, most companies operate, you know, in the same locale. Uh, What influenced you guys to become a remote company?
1: So there was a few companies doing it. You know, um, I think Basecamp 37, 37 Signals was like the most public about it, but also Automatic, GitHub, Reddit, like there was quite a few that were doing it and, Since Zapier was a side project, we were used to working like just wherever we were and not being in the same room. Um, YC was kind of a departure for the norm for us a little bit in that we were all in the same place. Uh, But then post YC, Mike uh, moved back to Missouri to be with his uh, then girlfriend, now wife, as she was finishing up law school. And so we were like, you know, you're not going to kick the guy out of the company just to, you know, be with the girl he loves. Um, (laughs) So we've just figured out, let's make a way to remote to work. And so and, and also when we went to go hire folks, we didn't know anyone in the Bay Area. We didn't have a network built up. We didn't know anything about hiring. The advice we'd heard from around hiring your first folks was to just hire folks you'd worked with in the past. And so um, you know, I had an old college roommate that lived in Chicago who was running a Cubs forum. And I figured if he could deal with Unruly Cubs fan, he could probably do customer service for us. Um, you had an old coworker who was an engineer that I worked alongside. We knew he was really solid. So he was in Columbia, Missouri. So, it, it, you know, we were just like finding these people we knew who were talented and it didn't matter to us where they were because, you know, we'd already set up kind of some systems and processes to make remote work. And, and that's kind of what set us down that path.
0: Uh, now that you guys are, are a profitable business, you know, unlike most of the people that I talk to, you guys have raised money. You went through YC. You had, uh, did you guys raise a seed round or an A round? We did a seed round, yep. A seed round, and you never raised after that, did you? Correct. What are the d- dynamics of that kind of relationship with investors, where you almost immediately go for profitability rather than you know continuing to raise additional rounds of funding? Because a lot of people listening are leaning towards the bootstrapper lifestyle. Maybe they don't want to talk to investors, and maybe they don't have time to do it. What are the advantages and disadvantages that you see of being a profitable company that's also raised money?
1: Uh, Good question. So, you know, for us, we were we pulled in a uh, million dollars in our seed round, and this was post YC. And the reason we did it, like, you know, our mentality is mostly to, you know, build profitable businesses. That's always kind of been our like the thing that we value. But we realized, you know, we've got a lot of work on our hands, so a little bit of cash Would really help us out a bit, you know, just to get things kickstarted. So having the money to pay for like two or three employees, you know, someone on support, someone on engineering to help us just kickstart things just a little bit faster uh, and afford to like live in Silicon Valley. um, That was basically all we felt we needed. And so that's what we did. And then the way we approached been hiring and spending money was we had this philosophy that at the time we used, which was don't hire until it hurts. So unless we knew we needed somebody, we weren't going to bring somebody else on. Uh, and that helped us kind of slowly add folks to the team as we grew and forced us to really be intentional about the types of folks we brought on. With the side note that the primary way you spend money in a company is hiring people. Um, there's, I mean, you might do marketing, but really salaries is, is what's the most expensive for those of you who are listening that's really what kind of kept our spending in check. And, you know, over time, we did add like quite a few folks, you know, we went from three people to seven to 14 to 30 to 70, right? So it ended up being actually like a a pretty good increase in headcount. But that rule of thumb always made sure that when we were hiring folks, it was when it hurt. And when there was money and revenue coming into the company. So we weren't spending VC money, we're spending our own revenues and profits.
0: It's funny that you mentioned uh, being able to afford living in the Bay Area because uh, it's so ridiculously expensive here. I talked to a lot of people on Indie Hackers, and a lot of the bootstrappers just aren't in the Bay Area. They're in Boise, Idaho. They're in Pennsylvania. They're in New Hampshire. And uh, I talked to Patrick McKenzie about it a few weeks ago, and his theory is it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if you're going to go the bootstrapping lifestyle, you can't afford to live in a tech hub where programmers are making $200,000 a year, you know, and rent is crazy. And on that note, I also wanted to ask about, you know, the pressure that a lot of people theorize comes from investors uh, to drive your company out of profitability mindset and into like a pure growth mindset. Do you feel that your investors are pressuring you to do that in any way? And you know, are they happy with your decision to become just a profitable company? Do you pay them a dividend or something? Or are they looking for like you know an IPO?
1: So uh, another good question. So Zapier's investors. Um, are there the board for Zapier is still Brian, Mike, and I. So at the end of the day, still we still control our destiny and can make the decisions that we think are are best for the company. Uh, and you know, early on we did get times like you know, are, are there ways that you feel like you can fuel more growth? You think you can grow faster? And and the thing we always went back and asked ourselves because we want to grow too, right? We want to have a make more money and you know, have more impact, like just because you're, you know, VC or bootstrap doesn't mean growth is part of both of those types of businesses, right? It's not exclusive to one, one type of business. And so we would go back and ask ourselves and say like, well, what would we spend more money? And we always felt like the money we were spending was what we would wanted to spend. We never felt like we wanted to spend more money. We felt if we spent more money, we couldn't control it. Like, you know, if we hired more people, it would disrupt the culture in a way that we couldn't control. So we always were like very measured about when we spent money uh, to make sure that it was like at a cadence and a pace that the business could support and not artificially doing it because that was what, you know, some VC thought was the smart thing to do. And so, like, that was our approach to it, and um, it worked out pretty well for us.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's worked out excellently, and I, we haven't really talked about revenue numbers or anything, and I'm not sure, you know, what you feel comfortable sharing, but just for some context, can you talk about how successful, I guess, Zapier is today?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, we announced a few months ago Zapier's has passed uh, $20 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, you know, that's taken us five almost six years to get there. Congratulations, man. That's huge. And how big is your team? Thank you. We're about 90 people today.
0: Whoa, that's awesome.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had no idea you guys are so big.
1: Yeah, uh, it it's definitely grown up a little bit since those uh, th- three people in an apartment <laughs> during YC. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you guys have raised the seed round. Let's go back
0: in time a little bit. Uh, you've raised your seed round. You're now spending your money hiring people rather than spending it on just like marketing and ads. How did you grow at that point? Was it just all word of mouth, magical growth, or were you guys uh implementing specific growth strategies and marketing strategies to get the word out about Zapier? The
1: the biggest thing we focused on was um getting more apps onto Zapier because that was kind of the the factor in terms of who could use our product. The product is used by people who are using other apps So if we had an integration for an app, that opened up a new potential market for us. So every new app we added to Zapier meant we could do co-marketing and, you know, trade email campaigns and, uh, you know, spin up landing pages and do all these sorts of things to promote to a new set of folks. So we invested heavily in our developer platform to try and onboard as many apps as we possibly could because every new app meant more potential customers for us. That's awesome. So just
0: by building your product and making it better by adding these integrations, uh, you guys had the side effect of every new integration was an opportunity to promote Zapier and promote the integration and, and work with the partner and doing that.
1: Exactly. And it really played to our strengths early on because we were a technical heavy founding team. So, you know, building those integrations was a lot more natural to us than doing, you know, sales outreach or something.
0: Yeah, I was going to say a lot of people listening are developers and I know that when I was working on my old app task force, like my dream was that I would just be able to sit down and code and that you know the primary driving of my actual user acquisition and marketing would be writing code. And For so many businesses, like with ND Hackers, it's literally the exact opposite. Every day I write code is the day that I'm not getting the word out about ND Hackers. Uh, and for a lot of businesses, that's the case. There's a lot in there about how you work with partners and how you promote. A lot of specifics that I think would be really cool to go into. Uh, you mentioned that... You were doing co promotion with the partners. You mentioned that you were setting up uh, landing pages, which I assume give you some SEO benefits. Can you talk about how exactly you promoted Zapier with these these new partners you're bringing onto the platform and also how that strategy evolved over time? Because I assume you guys got better at it as you.
1: Absolutely. Like we have a whole playbook on it now where every new partner, like we give them this checklist that's like a menu of things to work through like we know which ones work best which ones like are fine but you know honestly won't do much um so it's really gotten pretty good early on it was literally just like trying the things that we'd seen others do so it was like hey can can you put us in your app directory because most apps had an app directory Uh, and then from there it was like, well, Hey, you know, can you send an email out that announces the integration? Right. Because if you send an email out that Zapier is now on, you know, X app, that was, you know, an announcement that this existed. So those were some of the early things we did over time. We got more sophisticated about it. Like we started saying like, Hey, why don't you talk about integrations as part of your onboarding email flow? And Zapier can be a part of that. Why don't we include, you know, how to tutorials on how to do this as part of your help, docs, um, you know, and just really try and, you know, expand the surface area of, you know, Zapier inside of these partner apps, um, so that it made it a lot more easier to get awareness of Zapier if you're using those products.
0: So it sounds like earlier on you guys were just trying everything, uh, throwing spaghetti at the wall, which makes a lot of sense because, because you don't know exactly what's going to work earlier on. You haven't tried it. Uh, when you did, kind of solidify your playbook and improve it? Was it based on things that you tried early on that were just, that works the best and you just dropped the things that didn't work or was it?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So like we knew that the way to think about it is try and get your name in the principal path that a user is going to be following. Right. So if you think about how people use web apps, well they sign up for it they get a sequence of emails And then they interact inside the app most of the day. So it's like, well, can we get Zapier as part of the onboarding flow somewhere? Because that's going to be somewhere that every single user sees. That was like for us, like the best place to be versus, you know, it's great to be have a blog post about us. That's great. But blog posts get buried. They roll off the feed um, and disappear over time. So, you know, it was those types of learnings were things we had to figure out as we went along.
0: Was there any particular marketing channel or a promotion type that worked way better than the rest?
1: Um, I mean, email is great, honestly. Um, what's better than being in like the inbox of saying like, here's the thing that exists. You directly get outreach to somebody. So email is great. Search is great. Yeah, really just, just th- those and then word of mouth, having a great product that people want to talk about. Once you kind of get to a, a certain critical mass of folks, like that word of mouth should really start kicking in. From people talking about you,
0: yeah, email is consistently underrated as a marketing channel by a lot of new new developers and entrepreneurs and founders.
1: Oh yeah, I mean email is just like it's like there's everyone's talks about you know social media, Twitter, Facebook you know reddit hacker news things like that they're great but those are all spiky right you know it's like if something cool happens you might get a lot of traffic but then it disappears over time if you're collecting emails like that's a chance for you to like get in front of people again and again and again so what's your
0: email strategy like at zapier you mentioned having your partners kind of encouraging them to promote zapier to their email lists do you guys also sign people up for your own email list and if so what kinds of emails do you send to people
1: Well, for us, our email is really a chance to make Zapier kind of a a thing you daily interact with. So um, Zapier, our product is somewhat invisible, right? You set up these apps and they work and you may never have to go to Zapier.com again. So the way we treat Zapier, our email list is our, our blog, our learn resources, writing about work, helping people do better work and try and get people interacting with Zapier on a a daily or weekly basis through our content initiatives so that when you do think about, Hey, I need to automate some stuff like Zapier can be top of mind. Another
0: area where you guys uh, I think did a really great job was with kind of search engine optimization. You would put up these landing pages for every single integration that you did. And I'm sure that was painstaking work, at least in the beginning, like maybe you guys have automated (laughs) that whole process now, but can you talk about how your search engine optimization Worked exactly, and what kinds of things you were thinking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's fairly simple, right? You know, have a landing page for every integration you support. On a single individual integration, uh, there's not much traffic to it um, because there's just not that many looking for it. But as again, as we added more and more apps, that just meant you know, in plus one more opportunities for landing pages, and that search volume adds up over time. So it's just a really long tail play of getting as many apps on Zapier so that we can have more landing pages targeting more types of use cases. And so we would just spin them up as we went along. And it's, it's fairly automated nowadays. Um, and all those are opportunities, again, to, to get new customers.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think like it's cool listening to your story because you have so many different natural advantages with Zapier that you like really took advantage of and hit really hard to help grow the application. Besides just building Zapier itself, right? You've got the integrations, which seem to be the backbone of everything that you do, uh, and then you've got uh, things that are a little bit less, you know, naturally arising out of your product, like your blog. Which uh, I'm aware your blog gets a ridiculous amount of traffic, more than Indie Hackers does by far. I think. Uh, how did you set up your blog and what strategies do you use oh, uh, goodness. <laughs> to promote it?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> our blog was not great in the early days. You can actually you know, scroll to the very end of it and you can see it's me like writing about basically like our founding journey. I think a lot of blogs start out like that. It's like you writing meta commentary about your company, which is fine. But eventually, you probably are going to need to start having more of a strategy about how your blog aligns with what your customers care about. And oftentimes what your customers care about isn't necessarily your company journey. Uh, they care about something unique to them, right? And so I think at some point in time, I'd heard that, you know, Twilio had this strategy, which was like, make your customers your heroes. And, and you know, their content strategy was basically just like case study after case study of like cool things that people were building, and oh by the way twilio was part of what they built right and so that's kind of where we started to to move towards and eventually we stumbled on like this intersection of productivity and app specific content where you know there's a lot of generic productivity advice like wake up early in the morning or whatever right um but we didn't feel like people want more of that type of content like that content exists in spades what people really wanted was like deep tactical level stuff like Here's how to use Trello and Gmail to like craft an amazing hiring process. Um, And like, here's exactly how to set up your Trello board and like the filters you need in Gmail and everything, right? Like that kind of stuff is gold because now you can literally just be like, okay, I'm going to follow these steps one to 10 and I have a great hiring process set up, right? So that was the type of content we wanted to push for was, How can we talk about this intersection of productivity and apps and get people excited about stuff? And so that's the angle we took. So you'll see when you go visit our blog, like there is very little fluff, just, you know, puff pieces. Almost everything has like very specific types of things a person can do to improve what they do at work.
0: Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, you're actually producing good quality content, high quality content that people can't find elsewhere. And so if they want to read it, they have to come to your blog and then they're going to like it because it's not just fluff. But on top of that, I think there's, there's kind of like two aspects of it, right? You have to write good content and you have to figure out a way to get it into the hands of people who are going to read it. Uh, and that can involve things like search engine optimization, sending it out to your list on email, promoting it on social media. Uh, what have you found to be the most successful ways to promote the content on your blog? And how did you kind of get that ball rolling in the early days?
1: Email. Email is like, again, where it's at. So like once you get that list up, you know, just work on getting people who read your article the first time and say like, hey, if you want more of this stuff like this, like we'll let you know when a new article is coming out. Right. Get their email address. And then every time we send that email, those people would or we'd post a new post, we'd email them, they'd come back and read it. And then a lot of times that audience of people that were reading it, those would be the folks that help push it out even further, right? So those would be the folks that would submit the articles they like to Hacker News or they would set up, um, they would tweet about it or share it on Facebook or share it on LinkedIn or wherever. Um, So you would really, the email strategy was a way to get our own users to try and make the content go a little further Um, and some stuff viral, right? Eventually you do get a few that will exceed where the baseline is. So for us, it was always just get more emails to increase the baseline of what content is. And then over time, we'll just get more hits out of it too. Yeah, I'm
0: looking at your blog right now and it's like, you've got this very non-obnoxious little pop-up in the very bottom right corner of the screen. that's like, join 50,000 plus subscribers and get app tips, et cetera. Uh, and you put in your email address. And it, I think it's really cool to have give us your email and get more content like this is kind of your primary call to action on your blog posts. Cause it feeds directly into what you're saying. Like it's your best strategy is to hit people above your email. So, you know, maybe focus on that more so than focusing on trying to immediately convert them into Zapier users. Yep. Yep. Totally. And we're kind of running out of time, but there's one thing that I think I mentioned at the beginning that I really wanted to talk about, which is that in my view, there's kind of like two spectrums that a company can follow along. You could be like convert kit, for example, where you're entering a crowded marketplace full of a whole bunch of companies that are very similar to you, and you have to figure out how to differentiate yourself, but people already know what you are, and they're already searching for you. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got things like Zapier, where, you know, when you started this company, there was nothing that was really like Zapier, uh, and anything that was like Zapier wasn't really that popular, and so there wasn't a whole, you know, there weren't a whole bunch of people searching for, you know, Zapier or workflow automation, you know, or maybe there have, or maybe there were, and I'm not sure about it, but Uh, The question here is, when you're developing an app like Zapier, how do you communicate to customers and and educate them and let them know what it is that you're building? And how do you kind of drum up demand for something that's totally new that doesn't have like a whole bunch of search traffic on Google?
1: Yeah, I think you got to figure out what is the problem that your app is solving. And that way you can tilt your marketing more towards what I call demand harvesting rather than demand generation. Because you want to be... More like, you know, the the kit example, right? Where you can tap into existing marketing channels where there's known problems and sell that way because it's going to be just a lot easier to get your message out there uh, versus if you're trying to create an entire new category from scratch that's incredibly expensive. No one's searching for it. Uh, it's really hard to do that. So as best as you possibly can, try and get yourself into kind of those normal channels. So for us, the way we approached it was, Well, Zapier, the the tool is new and novel. The things we're solving are actually still fairly mundane or, you know, something that already exists, which is integrations. So people were already looking for integrations. Uh, You know, MailChimp had an integration directory. Salesforce had the App Exchange. Basecamp has their add-ons page. All that stuff already existed. So it's like, how can we just tap into that stuff that already exists to get new customers and just harvest the nascent demand that already exists today? Um, So really, that was it from the get go was like, just tap into existing channels, don't try and reinvent the wheel or create a new category or anything like that. From the get go.
0: I love that answer. Because even if you're building a tool like Zapier, which is totally new, and can't be easily compared to existing tools on the market, you're still solving a problem, or hopefully you're solving a problem, you really should be solving a problem that already exists that people are already looking for solutions for. So if you come at it from that angle, then you don't have to say, oh, my product is so new and unique, I have to drum up demand from scratch. Instead, you could ride the existing wave of traffic from people who are looking for solutions to the problem that it is that your new product solves. Uh, and you can use that to get your first users and grow from there. I think that's a great place to end the interview. Can you let us know where people can go to find out more about yourself your co-founders and Zapier?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'm, I hang out on Twitter fairly often at Wade Foster. Uh, if you want to learn more about Zapier, uh, Zapier.com with just one P, uh, the about page has some cool photos of our retreats in the past. Check it out where everyone's remote. Uh, we got job listings. If you're curious about coming to work at Zapier or anything like that. Um, Blog is also a really great resource too if you're um, looking for various apps to use and trying to think about the workflows you run in your own business. So I'd definitely check that out too.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show,
1: Wade. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Cortland.
0: Bye. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Andy Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com slash forum. Hope to see you guys there.